Tim Sullivan is the co-founder and co-CEO of Cavionix, the world's first hybrid cloud security platform. Tim has a 20-year track record of building emerging technology companies specializing in cybersecurity. In 2017, he co-founded Cavionics with Kaus Faltanker. Previously, as CEO of Npulse Technologies, Tim leveraged his industry knowledge and relationships to lead the company from a focus on providing packet capture technology to a position in cybersecurity as the premier provider of network forensics for the world's fastest networks. Npulse products are used by leading Wall Street banks, tier one telco providers, and the US intelligence community. In May 14, FireEye purchased Npulse. Prior to Npulse, he founded and was CEO of Fidelis Security Systems, now Fidelis Cybersecurity, another leading cybersecurity company where he was a key player in the development of the data leakage prevention, DLP, market. In August 2012, General Dynamics purchased Fidelis. Tim is a former U.S. Marine Corps Infantry Platoon Commander, and he holds a BA and an MBA from Columbia. Tim, welcome to Frontline Founders, a podcast series that showcases military veterans who've gone on to success as founders and builders of technology companies. Thanks for having me, Randy. Thank you, Tim. Tim, let's start with what do you do today as the co-CEO and co-founder of Cavionics in your own words? Yes. So my my partner, Kaus, and I kind of break up responsibilities where I focus on sales, marketing, finance, and sort of corporate development. Kaus is really the, the visionary of and architect of our product, and he also works on some key technology and go-to-market partnerships. Specifically, um, he brought the IBM Cloud Partnership to market and also the VMware uh, partnership um, online as well for us. Great. And and Tim, we, we mentioned it briefly in the introduction, but what does, what does Cavionics do today and, and what is unique about the company? So the basic thesis of Cavionics is that the digital transformation journey to the cloud does not end in a public cloud state. It ends in a hybrid cloud state. We believe that long-term equilibrium of distribution between workloads running in public clouds and workloads running in data centers will be about 50% in each environment. And so we wanted to build a single platform for managing risk and compliance across a hybrid cloud. So that's that's what we built. Right. And 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 Tim, we'll we'll transition back to your time in the military, some of your other executive experience before becoming a founder and 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 then talk through the the three businesses that you founded and and built, two of them you've sold, the third Cavionics you're building today, but Let's start, let's start by, by taking, it, taking it back. And could you tell us about your call to serve, you know, where you grew up and or when you decided to join the military and become a Marine officer? Sure. So I grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., went to high school in D.C. And um, then, you know, I went to college in New York at Columbia and really, I think two things inspired me to want to join the military. Um, one was the leadership of Ronald Reagan as president 
and his, you know, um, really support for the military and, and strengthening of the military. Um, and then secondly, honestly, it was the bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut in, in 1983 that really frankly pissed me off and, um, really focused me on, on joining the Marine Corps. Right. So those were the right. two. And, and did you, what, what was your commissioning process? Did you, um, how, how did you, from, from that call to serve, when did you yeah. actually then join the Marine Corps and, and head down to, yeah, to so officer yeah. candidates? So I, um, the, that bombing was in the, was really in the fall of 83. Um, I went to officer candidate school um, in the fall of 84. So, um, you know, no ROTC for me. There was no ROTC in the Ivy League in those days anyway. Um, and I decided, obviously, pretty late in my college career that that was the thing I wanted to do next. And, Tim, could you talk us through a, a, a bit what your, what your roles were when you served on active duty in the Marine Corps, what you did in the Corps yeah. during your active service years? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so I, you know, uh, was a, a weapons platoon commander, golf battalion, uh, golf company, second battalion, six Marines. So that was really my, you know, uh, infantry is my, my MOS in the Marine Corps, a 302. So, um, of course, I was in during a period of peacetime. So, you know, we did the typical stuff that, that, you know, Camp Lejeune based battalions do, which is, um, we went over to Okinawa, did a little bit of, you know, some operations in Korea, Diego Garcia, then, you know, back to, uh, to Swamp Lejeune. Right. Right. And, and, and what years, what years were those, Tim, that you were on active duty? Yes. So from 84 to 87. So I went to OCS and I had a three-year commitment. Um, I never really thought that I would pursue a career in the military. I just wanted to serve. So I did my three-year commitment on active duty. And then I did, you know, five years in the reserves, some of it in the individual ready reserve and some of it in, you know, with uh, a uh, reserve unit. Hmm. Right, right. I know the, that, that your service in, in the Marine Corps and, and that time is, has had a large impact on the rest of your life and your, um, your, your professional success. Could you, and we'll, we'll get into, uh, we'll get into some of your professional post-military technology executive and founder success here, Tim. Briefly though, were there opportunities while you served in the Corps that, that set you up for entrepreneurship? Were there things that helped you, you know, granted this was, was earlier and and there were a few years before you started your first company, but were, were there things about that service that, that helped you uh, once you made that decision to become an, an entrepreneur? Well, um, you know, obviously, I think the thing about joining the military is that the people who, who join the military um, have a higher tolerance for personal risk than, you know, people who don't. And I think that's one of the key attributes of entrepreneurship is um, the ability to accept risk 
personal risk. In most cases, of course, it's financial risk. Um, and to be able to deal with uncertainty. Um, and, um, and so I think that that was probably the, the, the primary sort of advantage I got from, from already being tested in a sort of high, high risk, high stress environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, uh, granted it probably was different, um, starting a company just because it was, it was not just personal risk, but it was now, um, you, you know, you, you had a family at that point too. Um, we'll, we'll, right. we'll, we'll, right. we'll, loop, right. we'll, we'll loop back around to, to that process. Um, but, right. but, but before that, Tim, could, could we just talk about, because, you know, I, I think our audience is, is, is broader here at Frontline Founders. That, that said, um, one of our big focus areas is military veterans and those transitioning out of the, out of the military. Fr- from what I understand, yeah. when you left yeah. the Marine Corps, that you went to, went, went to grad school and, and then had some years as an executive. Could you talk us through the decision-making process to when you left the Marine Corps, did, did you know what you were going to go do? You know, you went back to Columbia, but how did you think about what that next step was after your active duty service? Well, the first thing I did was learn how to program a computer. Um, I actually went through um, uh, a program at Electronic Data Systems to learn how to program computers because uh, I thought that, hey, maybe this computer thing might be actually, there might be, uh, it might turn into something. Um, and what what year was that, Tim? This is 1988. I, uh, I went to, I worked for Electronic Data Systems and I went through their systems engineer development program and through their computer boot camp, um, which had about the same attrition rate as my OCS platoon. So, I mean, it was, it was a fairly high, uh, attrition rate. And, uh, you know, we were programming computers 20 hours a day for, for about three months. So it was, it was definitely an interesting, um, experience. And, uh, so I did that before I went to graduate school uh, I noted two things in that experience. One was that I was not a very good computer program. And two, the guys who were selling the uh, programs were making a lot more money than the guys who were coding the program. So I thought, you know what, maybe I need to move in the direction of kind of sales and marketing. That's probably a better fit for me. So I was hoping sort of to get to that, uh, you know, to move in that direction um, I also, um, you know, wanted to, did want to start my own business. I felt like that was something that I wanted to do sort of, you know, within, you know, seven years after getting out of business school. Um, and I think I ultimately did it 10 years after business, after graduating from business school. So I was sort of, you know, trying to build a foundation in, in that direction that would enable me to have, you know, the business skills and the, the sales skills that would, you know, enable me to, to start a business. Right. Right. And, and, and when did that, um, how did that correspond to your time at, at, at business school? What, what, what years was, what years was Columbia business school? And, um, what was that? That's those steps after Columbia business school, but before yeah. your entrepreneurial yeah. journey. Right. So 90 to 92, I was in business school. And then, you know, I got out, briefly spent some time in manufacturing um, and, you know, in a 
the Fortune 500 company. And then I got a job in software. My first job in software was in product management. And um, we were doing electronic data interchange software. And then I, I you know, got involved with um, supply chain management software, bioinformatics software. And um, so I sort of worked my way up kind of through every job in, in software sales and marketing. And, you know, the, the next step past that was CEO. Um, I had a few bucks because I was, you know, I'd gone through an IPO of a, of a software company as a, as an executive. Um, so really kind of the next step was, you know, CEO and nobody was, was calling me up and hiring me to be a CEO. So I decided to hire myself by, <laughs> by starting a company. By starting a company. And, and, and Tim, yeah. could you, could you frame where you were in, in your career at that point? I mean, from, from, from what I remember your, you know, you, 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 you had a family, where, where were you, what year was this when you decided to start Fidelis? The way Fidelis got started was that, that, um, you know, Bear Stearns, the old investment bank, Bear Stearns took the previous company of which I was EVP of marketing and sales public. And um, so, you know, I was invited by the, the bankers to come back to New York, you know, after the lock and so forth. And after I left, they said, um, Hey, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, what's hot. And they said, internet security. And I said, okay, maybe I'll start one of those. And sort of that became the impetus to, to start Fidelis. Um, you know, I got together with a couple of the, the software engineers from the previous company and, you know, we decided to form a company and analyze the market in cybersecurity and try to identify an unsolved problem. And, uh, so we were, you know, it, it took us really about kind of six months of kind of conversations and looking at the market and so forth. And we decided that most companies at that time were trying to answer the question, who is getting in? And we decided that we didn't want to answer that question. We wanted to answer the question, what's getting out? What's getting out of my network? And and could we identify things like personally identifiable information, software, code, you know, intellectual property leaving the network? And um, at the time, the kind of hot network category was called intrusion prevention. Um, and we decided to position what we did as extrusion prevention. We wanted to prevent people from pushing stuff out of the network. And then eventually the market coalesced around the category name called data loss prevention. Right. Right. And, and, and Tim, what, what year was it that you started Fidelis and, and how long 2002. you started in 2002. And so that was 19 years ago, 19 years ago. And internet security was a hot sector. I mean, we'll, we'll, We'll come to, to Cavionics and, and why that is yeah. still true or, or, or true again, but 
gosh, I mean, you, you were, those were, could, could you talk for a minute, uh, you know, a, a couple questions spring to mind, Tim. Um, yeah. a, 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 and they are, what was, what was the state of internet security or my, my impression is that there must've been um, similar to today, given how many connected devices there are today, it seems like there are so many holes to plug, so many things to do. Um, you know, what, what was, what was the market like in, in 2002 in those early years? And, and how did you build the company? I I mean, my, my understanding is that there was venture financing involved, but, um, you know, what were some of the lessons from that too? Well, you know, the, the, the big thing about, uh, managing innovation is that you, it does need to be managed in the sense that, um, you know, you have to be able to associate your innovation with something that buyers already know or already understand. And, and that's challenging, of course, because you want to be ahead of the market. But the question is, you know, how far ahead of the market are you? Um, and, um, and that's where I think industry analysts, you know, play a role in helping sort of define categories. And what I tell people today, based on my experience, because, you know, quite frankly, Fidelis was too many years ahead of its time, um, that, you know, you either have to create a category which takes time and money or preferably find a way to fit into an existing category and sort of redefine it. So, you know, that was, that was our challenge back then because, um, you know, as I said, the dominant paradigm in cybersecurity was trying to answer who's getting, you know, through my firewall, who's getting into my database and so on. And we said, you know, that's, that's an important question to answer, but the real damage happens when stuff gets out. And so we wanted to put direct controls on, on stuff that gets out. And the other challenge is, you know, as I recall, uh, after 19 years is that, you know, a firewall has six, 65,535 ports on it. And so those were all holes through which you could push, um, information. Um, and we wanted to be able to put controls across every port on a firewall, whereas, you know, most companies that we were competing against could manage maybe five ports or something like that. And so, you know, we had to educate people as to why that was important, uh, an important technology differentiator. I have to say, you know, bringing this back to sort of the military, um, the people who really understood this before anybody else who, who understood the power of Fidel's technology were the guys at the Air Force. Um, they had something called um, the Air Force Cybersecurity, uh, or it was the Cyber Warfare um, Information Center, or something like I'm trying to remember the name of the, the, the unit they had, which was there, a couple of very smart people, uh, Captain Jared Phipps, Lieutenant Colonel Van Hove, who whose job it was to look out and understand 
new technologies that could be applied to, you know, in this case, Air Force, Air Force specific use cases, and then take that technology and kind of shepherd it through, you know, the, uh, the wild blue yonder, basically. And uh, they really understood the potential of the technology long before anybody else. And so that became kind of a playbook for me in my career, which is to validate the technology, you know, in the U.S. federal government. And then from there, you know, transition it out into the, uh, the private sector. Right. And I would say, to follow up on that, that the real domain expertise in cybersecurity really isn't out in the West Coast. It's really emanates from, you know, from in particular, if I had to pick one location, I'd pick Fort Meade, Maryland. Right. So that's why Washington in particular has spawned some very you know, significant uh, cybersecurity companies. And the, the, those are great points. And I think for for many people who are, are seeing how relevant cybersecurity solutions are both to U.S. government and to commercial and looking at today's Fort Meade and, and other veterans as having served on the, the front lines of, of what's happening today, um, th- this is, is such terrific context that this is, this is not, it's not new, right? It's not, it's been going on for, for years and you've, uh, you know, you've been one of the entrepreneurs who's, who's lived this, lived it these last nearly 20 years and, and, and built, built a few companies. Tim, let's let's wrap up on Fidelis. Um, could could you talk about what you know how, how you how you thought about the company getting you know th- thinking about its its um, getting acquired and that decision, um, and then we could 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 head into to Endpulse. But but how did Fidelis end up? And, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, there was a kind of a trend about a decade ago of major federal systems integrators buying cybersecurity companies. There were a number of transactions in the space. Um, the Fidelis acquisition by General Dynamics was one of them. Um, by that time, Fidelis did have significant commercial traction. Um, and I think the fact that Fidelis did kind of made it less of a long-term fit for for GD. So they held on to it for a couple of years and then spun it out to, to private equity um, because it wasn't sort of exclusively focused on, on you know, federal government uh, customers. So I was certainly happy because whenever you get into a venture, you, you really want to have an exit plan for it. Um, so it worked out, you know, worked out well for me and, and for my shareholders. After selling um, Fidelis to, to GD and presumably you had some sort of earnout or had to serve there for a bit, maybe that's not right. But shortly thereafter, you decide to build Endpulse. What, yeah. what <laughs> you, you know, you, you hadn't had enough. I guess you still haven't had enough yeah. of, uh, of being an entrepreneur. Right. Right. What what right. what learnings from the Fidelis experience informed the way that you built yeah. Endpulse? Yeah. 
Okay, so I was already gone from Fidelis, uh, so I, I had no earnout uh, related to to that. Um, so I was no longer in an operational role. But when I got to Impulse, um, you know, by that time I'd spent you know close to ten years in the cybersecurity market, so I had a feel for the whole challenge of you know categories, getting into a category, understanding what categories are hot. And so at that particular time, that was really the the era of what we used to call the advanced persistent threat, the APT. And these were sort of attacks defined um, by a you know multi-stage process that that Lockheed Martin, you know, um, called the kill chain. So attacks that were low and slow that would play out over an extended period of time, months or years if if necessary, um, where forensic information was critical to identifying uh, an attack that was in process and hopefully, you know, thwarting the attack before it became, it achieved its, its last stage, which is known as actions on objective. And so, um, so I knew that forensic information was important, which required packet capture. And I linked up with, you know, Gunny Randy Caldehon, who was, who was, you know, one of the first, was a plank holder at TAO, Tailored Access Operations up at the fort. And he had some technology that could do packet capture, you know, faster, you know, 10 times faster than anybody else could, 20 times faster anybody else could. That was important because at that time, networks were beginning to transition from, you know, 1G networks to 10G networks. And in fact, I think 2013 was the tipping point when more 10G circuits were were lit up than, than 1G. So we were the only company out there that had 10 gig full duplex um packet capture, lossless packet capture at, at 10 gigabits in both directions. And so um, we were, you know, we had some advantage and then our challenge was, okay, well, you know, how do we take technology and add value to it such that it becomes compelling for forensics investigations? And so, you know, we, uh, we, uh, really embraced a, a, a product management strategy that says we needed to go from high-speed packet capture, which we were originally selling into Wall Street for folks who were doing high-frequency trading and transition the company from kind of a network monitoring company to a uh, network forensics company that was focused on cybersecurity. And that, that's what we did. And that resulted in purchase by FireEye, which had just purchased the world's premier forensics investigation company, Mandiant. Um, and so our technology was was perfectly complementary um, to that. But if we had stayed, you know, on Wall Street, just focusing on high frequency traders, obviously we never would have been purchased by FireEye. Sure, sure, right. And how was your strategy for financing Enpulse different than Fidelis? 
Well, we were pretty much customer financed. Um, and that was really driven by the work we were doing on Wall Street. So we used the, the cash we made from from selling, you know, millions of dollars of our of our appliances under Wall Street um, as growth capital. And then, you know, we were angel funded and I was the primary angel. So I think it's always easy to uh, encourage investment or to attract investment when people are co-investing with the CEO on the same terms as he. And, and that's what that's what I was offering. After you you worked at FireEye for yeah, yeah. A, f- a couple of years, you right, right. now partnered with with Kaus. So let, I mean, let's let's talk about your your current yeah. company, Cavionics. What, what, yeah. what, what, why? You know, th- third time. You know, as as an entrepreneur after a, a successful um, career prior to entrepreneurship and uh, and and your marine service at the beginning of the career. What was the what, what? How did you think about starting uh, yet another uh, company, and and what did you want? What do you want to achieve um, with with this one um, compared to you know the other two successes that that you've had, Tim? Yeah. Well, maybe maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment. I don't know. So uh, decided to get back on the horse and get in another uh, rodeo. But um, you know what we were doing. Or the you know it's always advantageous if you can find a big problem to solve. At the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do: is solve problems with people. Um, and what we saw, what Cows saw, is that you know there was this digital transformation journey to the cloud, um, and what we've seen and it's certainly been confirmed since we founded the company. There's a little bit of a disjuncture between security and development where it's a little bit of ready, fire, aim where development has jumped into the cloud, assuming that the cloud was a secure environment and they've sort of left security, you know, behind them and sort of blind to to what's going on in the cloud. And um, so we wanted to be able to help organizations govern their digital transformation in an orderly fashion uh, and take advantage of all the benefits of the cloud while still, you know, managing the risk of being in the cloud Um, and, and specifically the hybrid cloud, because we believed then and we still believe, and it's certainly been confirmed to us in our discussions with fortune 500 corporations, money center banks, federal agencies and so forth that, you know, that the journey to the cloud will end in a hybrid cloud state. So, um, so that was kind of the vision that, that Cows had. And so we really set about really in the beginning of 2018, building the, the, the code required to, to solve the problem. We really focused on the data center uh, component of the solution first, because that's actually much, much harder than public cloud. Public cloud is all driven by APIs. There's only so much access the public cloud providers will give you to their infrastructure. And so, you know, that's, that part of the challenge was really a sort of 
on the order of magnitude of sort of man weeks to get up and running with cloud security posture management, but to do it in the data center where you have access to the full stack, that's kind of a man years effort. And so we're really the only cloud security company who's taken on the data center and delivered. Mm, right, right, right. And the 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 early days at at Cavionics, what what were your? It's now you know four years into the journey. Um, yeah, you built a real platform. This is not a. This right. is this is. There's a lot of needed complexity in 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 what you built. Can, can you talk about how you you know how, how you thought about that process of making sure the platform performed at scale for enterprise customers and doing that over the course of the first um, the first couple years. Yeah. Well, we're always building for, you know, both Kaus's experience and my experience is in meeting the needs of, you know, global 2000 companies, major government agencies. We've followed a similar playbook um, here. Both, you know, Cal has tremendous experience solving very, very large scale federal government problems. Um, and so we've gotten sort of our first validation of the platform um, in the federal government and have subsequently uh, gotten additional validation of it in financial services, insurance, um, retail, um, and so, you know, it's a fairly standard playbook for, for companies around here. Uh, but we always architected for scale. It, this was never intended to be, you know, sort of a small, medium-sized business uh, platform. Although we do have those clients through um, our, um, through our SaaS platform, we, we originally architected the, the platform to be multi-tenanted and multi-tiered so that service providers could utilize the platform to service their customers who tend to be smaller in size. Yes, yes. And and Tim, as you said, both your and Kaus's experience is serving Global 2000, serving large, complex enterprises. Yeah. You've been doing this for, for, for years and, and as an entrepreneur for nearly two decades, how has serving this same group of clients, large commercial enterprises, governments, how has the, the go-to-market motion either remained very similar or changed for that level of client specifically? I think yeah. re- reaching some of the small and me- medium businesses may have changed in terms of go-to-market. But with those large enterprises, how has your go-to-market approach from Fidelis to Enpulse to to Cavionics changed or or been similar yeah. over these last yeah. years. So, yeah. So honestly, technology adoption has has not changed. The technologies may change, but the technology adoption life cycle doesn't really change. I, to all my you know military colleagues out there who are looking to start ventures, I would refer to them refer them to the kind of the Bible of high tech marketing, which is a a book called Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore, which very specifically focuses on the way mainstream enterprises adopt technology. Um, 
it's it's extremely important book to 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 read to to understand um and it it was it came out in the mid 90s and it's as relevant today as it was in the mid 90s when it came out so it's a lot about you know the the metaphor the central metaphor of, of the book is actually making an amphibious landing and establishing a beachhead and then expanding a beachhead out and you know how do you and and and, and forming an invasion force and typically that involves you know how you partner to establish a beachhead so for example for us you know some of the important uh, types of companies that I've mentioned, particularly commercial companies, um, we've gotten through our partnership with IBM Cloud, um, where we are the sort of risk and compliance dashboard for the IBM uh, Financial Services Cloud and IBM Regulated Workloads Cloud. In the federal government, we both have pretty long-standing personal relationships, relationships of trust with important customers um, and and therefore we were able to directly um, you know work with them to solve their problems we also have long-standing relationships with resellers who have trusted you know relationships in the in the federal government so it's been primarily a direct sale go to market motion in the federal government based on our personal relationships Right, right. Well, Tim, it sounds like you're, you know, continue to solve uh, important problems and, and challenges for, for these large clients in, in all of these companies that you've created and, 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 and led. As we, as we move to, to wrap up here, Tim, yeah, I, I'd love to, to bring it back to, to some of the, uh, the, the military's time and, and, and how that impacted you for, for better and worse as, as an entrepreneur. Um, and, and to conclude, are there, we talked about this a, a bit before, but are there things from the military that put you ahead as an entrepreneur? Were, were there things that you felt behind as, a, a, again, your your decision to become an entrepreneur was, yeah. was after several years learning the ropes and, and, and leading at other companies. But um, be, because there are, uh, you know, a number of military veterans and, and those who are yeah. considering starting their own businesses, particularly tech ones in this audience, um, uh, do, do you have closing closing thoughts for for those who are who are in yeah. those shoes today? Yeah, Tim? I do. I mean, obviously, the most important advantage you get in the military is learning leadership, and primarily learning from other great leaders. I was very very fortunate when I was in the Corps to to serve under some great leaders from from the Vietnam era who would stuck it out through the kind of tough times of the seventies and, and in the eighties were leading, you know, battalions and regiments and divisions and so forth. And these were truly, truly great leaders. Um, you know, a couple of practical things, you know, we all learned that you don't screw with the troops chow or their pay. Um, in the private sector, of course, we're not worried about people's chow. We're not taking care of their chow but we always need to take care of their pay. And so, you know, as a leader, you just have to expect that um, you get paid last. I mean, it's kind of like we learned in the core, officers eat last, go to the back of the line. And so that could, 
that process for you personally could mean years of not getting paid. And you have to be prepared to do that. Now, if you want to take venture capital, that's fine too. Uh, there are always pros and cons of, of taking uh, venture capital. But it, 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 what, what matters is that you, know, you never miss a payroll. You're never late for a payroll. Uh, people's you know, lives are at stake there, their livelihoods, their ability to take care of their own family is at stake. And those, those are the really, really important uh, lessons that, that, you know, you learn through, through leadership. You know, what are you not prepared for? Well, you know, obviously the government, the military is mission oriented. It's not necessarily, it isn't profit oriented. You need to be able to understand profit and how to reward investors who take a risk with you, you know, as important as uh, your employees are, your shareholders are extremely important. Um, you have to take care of them. Um, and that's why, you know, and they need to understand that, that you are focused on them and rewarding them. And, um, and that's very, very important because if you, you know, you're not, you're probably not going to have one venture in your career. If you do it once, then it's very likely you'll be doing it again. And, um, and, you know, that will pay, you know, the goodwill that you create with investors will, will pay off, you know, many times in your next venture and the one following that as well. Great. Thanks again, Tim, for your time. Thanks for sharing it with with our audience, our veterans, and uh, and the frontline founders audience as a whole. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. A lot of fun. 